There's a lost soul who's tired of the sinning. You are listening to the Daily Doctrine Devotional. This is a daily podcast designed to teach and preach Bible doctrine each weekday throughout the year. This is Evangelist Tim McVeigh asking you to please let others know about this podcast so that they can subscribe or tune in each weekday. At the end of the podcast, we will provide you with subscription information as well as contact information for our ministry. Thank you for listening, and we pray that the Lord will help each of us as we study and preach the Word of God. And the saints all with gladness are singing the glorious song of the redeemed. Song of the redeemed. In April of 2022, the Manassas Community Baptist Church of Blaine, Pennsylvania, hosted our King James Bible Conference. Pastor John Asquith, who is the pastor of the Black Creek Baptist Church in Black Creek, New York, was our guest speaker for three nights of conference. We've taken these messages and we've broken them into 15 podcasts, so that'll be three weeks, approximately 15 minutes per day, of King James Bible instruction and teaching. And Brother John deals with the history of the King James Bible. He deals with the authority of the King James Bible. And then lastly, he deals most of all, most importantly of all, I should say, He deals with what the King James Bible can do for you. And so I pray these messages are a help. I pray that they're a blessing to each of you as you listen to the conference. Can't be somebody with a chain around their neck because Pharaoh's telling you're going to copy that entire library over. And it's got to be somebody who loves what they're doing and loves that. And over the years, God has blessed the church of Jesus Christ with people with that very thing where they have loved what they're doing. We know about the Jewish scribes. We talked about that last night, how that those people were trained all their lives to be able to sit there and write, how that three of them, it would take them three years to make one copy of that Old Testament, 200 lambskins. Again, think how, how much that would be, okay? Think of somebody, think of, uh, you know, somebody's got six or seven years of college. How much would you have to pay them a year? Multiply that by three and then by three years, okay? That's how much a Bible costs. That's how much labor it would take to have one Bible. But those men were expected absolutely to do a perfect job. Perfect. And the Jews were jealous for the Word of God. God had committed it to them. So when we get into the Christian church and we get into what we call the New Testament, we're going to find that it's not as clear-cut how that was done. Now, a couple of things we're going to look at here. We know that many of the letters, almost instantly by the time a letter was written, many copies would be made and sent around from house to house and to different places. And you want to know something else? Chances are some people made mistakes. Okay? So that not every letter, maybe if you had six copies of the book of Romans, everyone had a mistake in it. Oh, oh no. Well, let's just do an exercise here for a moment. What if we took all the kids that were between the fifth grade and the tenth grade here, and we gave them all one chapter of the book of Romans, and made them copy it by hand. Every comma has to be exact, every colon has to be exact, every number has to be exact, every word has to be spelled right. And we only gave them one shot to do it. What are the odds that all of them would do it perfect? Okay? Some of you homeschooling mothers know that the odds are very low. All right? 
that they would do that exactly perfect. But what are the odds that any two of them would make the same mistake? Okay? So maybe little Tommy on Romans chapter 2, he missed a comma. Little Sally, everybody else has that comma there. Okay? Of the ten kids doing it, nine commas are in one place, and one place there's not a comma. Isn't it easy to figure out that a comma needs to be there? This is what we call collating, where you take a bunch of things and assume that everyone has a mistake in it, but not everybody makes the same mistake. Okay? And so you put them all together and you collate them, and when you're done, you can have a perfect copy of that chapter. Because not every child has made the same mistake in the same place. It would be almost extreme odds that any two children would make the same mistake in the same place. That's probably not going to happen. So one of the keys with the Bible is the idea, and I'm going to use a term here, I'm going to call it the majority manuscript. And we have a minority manuscript. We have two types of Bibles out there. Majority, minority. Why is that important? All right, let's use another illustration. What if we had a contest, girls against the boys, and we said, what we want you to do is we want everybody to sit and write a copy of Romans chapter 1, okay? And you're going to have one hour to get it done, okay? And we're going to have the boys do it against the girls to see how well they do. But we give the girls a two-day head start. Okay? And then we have them start. Okay? Who's going to have more done at the end of five days? The girls are. Okay? So the thing is, there are two streams of Bibles out there. Two basic streams of Bibles. Today, we think of them as the new versions versus the King James Bible. The King James Bible was translated out of what we call majority manuscript, meaning if you take all the Greek manuscripts out there, the majority of them agree with the King James Bible. Why? Because it started much earlier. It started in the first century. The new Bibles didn't start till the 3rd and 4th century. Okay? Therefore, they never caught up and got as many manuscripts as the King James Bible did. Now, right off the bat, most Bible college professors would turn, are going to turn this off. No, 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 they don't believe that. Okay? But you want to know what? Find any given age where the scholars were correct. The scholars disagreed with the Apostle Paul. They disagreed with uh, they disagreed with John Wesley. They disagreed with John Bunyan. They disagreed with Billy Sunday. They disagreed with Oliver Green. They disagreed all the time. Okay, and today if you go to Bible college, the scholars will disagree with God and everybody else. It doesn't bother them. They they trust their scholarship. But at the same time, I'm talking to you tonight as a scholar who has sat in the bowels of libraries and studied this out and gone through and held these Bibles in my own hand, okay? Not only that, I have lived overseas, I have lived in Europe, I've lived in these places, and I have observed many of these things. There's other things where I have to rely on other people's scholarship, 
But I'm going to let you know why I rely on it as we go through this. Trying to make this two things. One, intellectual. <laughs> All right? But fascinating. You know, I want it to be interesting. I want it to be something where, you know, you, you get it. You understand what we're saying. J. Vernon McGee, somebody asked him one time why his preaching was so popular, and he said, well, he said, I usually sit on Monday and write out my sermon for the next Sunday. And then I ignore it and pick it up two days later and read it again, and I simplify it. And he said, then I get up the next day and read my sermon again, and I simplify it again. And he said, finally on Saturday night, I've simplified it four or five times, and I finally sit down and simplify it so much that all my friends that I went to college with would be ashamed of it. And he said, then people call my preaching great. Okay? So tonight, what I want to do is take what everybody sits there and fist fights, gets mad about, and everything else, and simplify it as much as I can, so keep it accurate, okay, with where it's supposed to be. So the idea is, if one group of manuscripts started in the first century, and the next group of manuscripts started in the fourth century, just like those girls and boys making copies, which one's going to be the majority? The one that started the earliest. Now, for the scholars who might be listening, who want to look in more, there's a book called the Identity of the New Testament Text by a man by the name of Pinkerton. And he has gone through these exact things I've just talked about and shown that the odds that the manuscripts between, behind the ESV, the NIV, the uh, Jerome Bible, the Douay Reims, any of those Bibles like that, he said it's infinitesimally small that those would actually be the right ones. He said just infinitesimally. It's almost not even worth talking about when you look at that idea of one starting in the first century, the other starting in the third and fourth century, and they start making copies, okay? The other thing I want you to understand about a King James Bible is this. The New Testament was written in the Greek language. Now, I don't know if we have anybody here that's a native Greek speaker. No, apparently not. It's not a big language here in Blaine, all right? Not even in Perry County, all right? We encompass the whole county. We probably don't have many of them, all right? And I lived in Greece for a number of years, but even then, it's not the same Greek, okay? The Greek today, for example, our Amish friends there, the language they would speak at home, people call it Pennsylvania Dutch, it used to be the same as German, but both languages split apart, so it's different today, okay? The two Greeks are the, are, have done the same thing. If you read the Greek of the Bible and read, and read the Greek today, they really can't understand each other real well. They're separated. The two languages have kind of gone apart. With those Greek Bibles, and with these people writing them down, and putting them together, and collating them, not a century or two later, most people weren't speaking Greek. So what are they supposed to do? Sit and learn Greek? No. They put it into their own language. What were some of the popular languages of the time? Latin. What was the number? What was the empire that ruled the whole world at that time? Rome. So there is a Latin version of the Bible that comes out about the year 100 A.D. Okay, it's called the Old Latin. There's uh, some fancy names for it. It's called the Old Latin Bible. But just like everything else, there's also a new Latin Bible that started around the year 300 called the Jerome text. If you read the Jerome text, it reads just like an NIV or an ESV. 
If you read the Old Latin Bible, it reads just like a King James Bible. Because there are verses different in each one. Okay? That Old Latin Bible, well, let me give you an idea. Go to 1 John, if you want. Go to 1 John, 1 John 2. Here's what it says. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. Now look at the rest of that verse. You see that but that's in brackets? And then the rest of the verse is all in italics. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. The whole thing is in italics. Now let me give you a rule for italics. If the King James translators had to put words in there because they weren't in the Greek, then they put them in italics. You mean they added words to it? Sometimes from one language to another you have to do that. Now let me give you an example. Trevor, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to say one sentence. Go to the store. Go to the store. You English teachers, what's the subject of that sentence? Word you. Did I say you? No. But when we diagram sentences, go to the store is a valid, sub, a valid sentence, but there's no subject to it. So they have what's called an implied subject. Now, you couldn't do that in Spanish. Couldn't do that in French. You'd have to put the word you in there. So if I were to translate, go to the store into Spanish or French, I would have to put a word in italics to show I had to put a word in there to make it make sense. Right. Okay? Because when you go from one language to another, sometimes you need an extra word to make it mean the exact same thing. Okay? So anytime the King James translators had to insert a word to show you their honesty, they put it in italics then why did they put an entire half of a verse in italics? Here's the reason why. The oldest Greek manuscript the King James translators had was somewhere from around the year 900 AD. But they had Italian, they had Latin manuscripts all the way back to the year 100 AD. They had Syrian manuscripts from the year 200. They had Coptic, which is an Egyptian language, from the year 300, okay? All those languages had the second half of that verse. So they declared to themselves, we know the Greek must have had it because whoever wrote that, uh, that Latin was an eyewitness of it. They put it in there. Whoever wrote that Syrian Bible was an eyewitness of it. They wrote it in Syrian. Somewhere in the one we have, six, seven hundred years later, they left it out. So they put the second half of that verse in there and said, we're going to put it in italics because it's not in any Greek Bible we have, but we know it was there. By the way, in the 1960s, a group of little papers were found called papyri. Now to understand what that is, have you ever gone into an attic and found little pieces of newspaper, just little scraps, and you could pick up a little bit and show you a loaf of bread, maybe it was 13 cents, and that's all you can read on it. Or, you know, you, you pull out an old drawer and some mice have chewed some stuff up, and there's a little bit of a book there. Those, when they find little scraps of a Greek Bible, they're called papyri. Papyri's 44 and 45, they're all labeled, they're all kept scientifically. 
They are from about the year 60 and 70 A.D. And they were looking at those and trying to understand and realize, oh my goodness, it's the second part of that verse. It really had been in Greek way back then. Okay, It really had been. They knew it 1,500 years later because the Syrian Bible had it, and those Syrians had read the original manuscript. They saw that the Latin Bible had it. Those, those Latin people had read the original one, and when they copied it down, so they were eyewitnesses to what the apostles wrote. One of the fallacies in the new Bible movement today is they ignore the eyewitnesses of people who saw those original Bibles. What they do is they pull out Bibles from three or four hundred years later, and we're going to go into this later, they're very corrupt Bibles. There's a lost soul who's tired of his sinning, and he longs to return to the Lord. As he cries for forgiveness and mercy, God is waiting. You have been listening to the Daily Doctrine Podcast with Evangelist Tim McVeigh. For correspondence, please contact us through our website and someevangelist.com and use the contact form to connect with us. You may also subscribe to the podcast through our website or search for Daily Doctrine Evangelist Tim McVeigh on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or Amazon. To write to us, please use our church address, which is Manasseh Community Baptist Church, 70 Back Hollow Road, Blaine, Pennsylvania. 17006. Thank you for listening, and we pray that the Lord will help each of us as we study and preach the Word of God. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in tomorrow. And remember to look up for your redemption draweth nigh. Now the angels of God are rejoicing for the prodigal child has come home, and the saints all with gladness are singing the glorious song of the redeemed.